one of God's men and he wants to speak something important to you. And uh, I believe he's here. And in order to give, <clears throat> and giving you his sermon for today is Mr. Matt Steele, God is Real. Forgot to charge my iPad, sorry. Well, I appreciated uh, Ron singing God Save the King. <laughs> it's a nice introduction. It's really strange to say it that way, though, isn't it, Mark? So, um, when I was a boy back uh, in England, uh, my, for a long time of my youth and childhood, my dad worked in screen printing. He worked in a screen printing company and several companies. And um, this one particular company he worked at was called Barnes & Steel. Uh, his brother, my, my uncle Dave, owned half of the business. And so, um, it's a very dramatic music. So my dad uh, worked for his brother and uh, one of his partners, and they made all kinds of things. They made road signs and building signs and exit signs and, uh, I mean, basically anything sign-related. They either printed or carved it, um, and it was uh, a very refined skill. My dad had the ability to mix all the inks to code by sight instead of by measuring things just really had a unique uh, skill to do that work. And in the summer, for a couple of different years, uh, I would go with my dad to his work, right? And anybody ever go to their dad's place of work? It's kind of fun, wasn't it? You got to see a whole new world and a whole new side of your dad as he interacted with work colleagues and, and so on. And, uh, I enjoyed that a lot. I, uh, I did some jobs. So I got the tea, you know, made the tea, and then uh, made the toast. We didn't have a toaster, so you toasted it on the front panels of one of those uh, portable heaters with some forks. So, you know, that was one of my jobs. Um, of course, I got to tidy up and sweep and do some other tasks, but it was mostly just probably to keep me out of my mother's hair and also give me uh, some time with my dad. and. I certainly cherish that. So along with the big road signs and the big projects that they did, um, they also did these small little projects. And uh, I was always um, confused as to who would buy these things. But um, what they would do is produce little stickers. And you know, you've seen stickers, right? You've seen them on. Oh, for kids, they stick them on their shirts, or you know, it's got a little message on it, or maybe uh, you know, some sort of event or poli political campaign, or maybe you'll see a sticker on an advertisement or a piece of material that's trying to draw your attention. And so they had this huge machine 
probably you know three times the size of this podium, uh, and and as tall, and and it would produce these little stickers. <laughs> this big piece of equipment to produce these small one to two inch stickers, and when they were done with a particular job, they would have excess material that could never be used for another job. It wasn't enough, right? Because nobody would ever order a small amount of whatever that they wanted in the way of these stickers. So my dad would take these stickers, take these rolls, and redesign them in the system and produce his own stickers that he would share with friends and family. And he'd bring them home to us kids, and we'd decorate the house with these stickers which I'm sure my mom did not appreciate. Uh, I mostly put them on my, the end of my bed or my bedpost. Or uh, I, was, I had a bunk bed for a while, and so some of them were on the, you know, the, the barrier there so you couldn't fall out of the bunk bed. And I put stickers on there. And uh, I just you know, enjoyed that my dad had made these and brought them home to us. I still have some of these stickers today. And the reason that I have these little reminders of my dad from all those years ago is because I took some of these stickers and put them on my first Bible. And so we've got Jesus is Lord. We've got a picture which kind of looks like the earth. And it says God's country. Um, a couple more on the back. And then this one, it's kind of getting worn off. It says the Bible is pure gold. God brings peace. There's a cross in there. Sorry. Uh, know that Jesus is Lord. And uh, I, the one that I was really thinking about in regards to this message today, I guess I didn't stick on my Bible. And it's probably one of the most important stickers, if you want to put it in those terms, that he produced. And it simply says this. God is love. God is love. And it was a round sticker. And I just, I just remember it to this day. God is love. And, and I remember thinking about it when, when he gave me you know, a couple of these stickers. And I'm putting them in places. What does that actually mean? You know, for a young boy, eight maybe seven or eight years old, what, what does that mean that God is love? So I have this fun memory, and uh, for me it was, it, was a, it was a cherished time being able to go to my dad's work and hang out with him and do some things, and, and it was just a positive time before, well, before darkness came in my life and then also, you know, just in the world, right, because how things have changed uh, in the world and in our life. And so we hold on to this concept here of that sticker, that God is love. A simple statement of fact. A simple statement of faith. And hope. And gratefulness. What if God was not love? What would... What would things look like then if God was not love? But it isn't just that God is full 
of love. He's not just the author of love. God is the very definition, the express definition of love. It is the highest emotion. It is the highest action. It's the highest feeling. It's the highest thing that we could attain to. And God is that. God is love. This simple sticker was taken, of course, from 1 John chapter 4, and verse, uh, verses 7 through 11. John says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. God is love. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us. It was shown to us. How could God possibly show any more love in that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him? And this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation of our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So there's three important things that I would really like you to take away from my message today. First and foremost... I've already stated it. God is love. He is complete. He is the complete and ultimate expression of love. The word used in this passage and in so many places where we are instructed to love, to love God and to love one another, it is agape. It is that highest form of love as represented in the Greek language. It's considered to be the strongest highest, most noble love. It's not romantic love. It's not brotherly love. It is a father-like love. It is a protective love. It is a good will. Remember on the birth of Jesus when the announcement was good will towards men. It is that kind of love that the object of the love doesn't deserve it. And yet God brings that good will. He wills good towards us. It is a love that delights in the object of its love. It is the love that never fails. And as we'll look here shortly in 1 Corinthians 13, it is that love that just endures everything. So the first thing for us to do is to recognize that God is that love, the ultimate expression of that love. And you might be thinking, well, some of you might be thinking, well, that's, that's pretty basic, it's obvious, but it's not actually that easy, is it? Because so many things happen to us in our life that get in the way of understanding the love that God has toward us. Maybe how we were treated as children, how we were treated specifically by our Father, can cause a barrier to accepting the kind of love that God has that is 
boundless, that is unlimited, and will never end. A love that is many ways hard for us to understand. The second thing I think we need to recognize is that God is love, but we are not. God is love, but we are not. What do I mean by that? Well, we are not the source of love, are we? We are not the source of this kind of love that God is talking about. Oh, we can love like this. We can love like this at times. We can love in the way that he loves. But we are not the source of love. And not every one of our actions is dictated by that love, is it? Because we have something else in us working against that love. Working against how we could truly love one another. And that is our flawed human nature. That is self-centered. And not other-centered. Not the love of God. The third point that I'd like you to take away and think about is that we need to recognize that we are, at least in my opinion, in this time frame today, we are at the time frame that Jesus told us about when he said that the love of many would wax cold. I believe we are in the last days. I know that's a strong statement. I'm not making any prophecies, so please don't stone me. But I believe by what we can see in the world today regarding love that we are in the tribulation. And it has begun. We have made the mistake, I think sometimes, and I think I mentioned this a few weeks ago, of looking for what you could describe as the zombie apocalypse, right? For the disasters to strike the earth and for all of these wars and famines and pestilences to come crashing in on us and destroy society and relationships and and how we function. But we are already there. There are already wars going on. There's already famines and pestilences all around this world. And it's only through our technology that we get to deflect some of the effects of that. Jesus said this would happen, that there would be wars and rumors of wars and so on. But there's a really definitive point in that prophecy that we'll look here in a second. We can actually see the work or the, the process entering into the tribulation. In Matthew chapter 24, in verse 12, Jesus says, And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. So when we look at society, when we look at the world, we can use this as a litmus test. Where is the love of man toward man? Where is the love of God in man towards man? It's waxing cold, isn't it? We can see it day by day. And then Jesus says this, but he who endures to the end, shall be saved. And it's interesting that Jesus says, endures to the end. 
Endures what? What are we to endure? You might think, well, we have to endure all the things that are happening. Well, yeah, that is, that is partially true. I don't think that's what he's getting at. You might think, well, lawlessness is abounding, so we need to endure in the law. There's an element of that. But I think what he's really telling us is that we need to endure in the love of God. We need to continue in that love. Giving it and receiving it. Because there's a two-way process at work here. When a heart grows cold, when a heart becomes hard and distant and breaks off relationship, what happens? It can neither receive nor give love. And that's what we're seeing in the world today. I think what he is saying is that we have to endure in love. We have to keep the love of God in our hearts. We have to keep loving others with the love of God. And he uses the same word here, love, agarpe, as we, we read earlier, that John used. He who keeps their agarpe love, who endures with that love, does not let it grow cold. Those will be saved. And this is fascinating and maybe a little upsetting because it's easy to get stuck in our minds that, well, if we just overcome, we just overcome by obedience. We just do everything right and we pass the mark. But we know we can't measure up to the mark, can we, by our works. And so I think that's what Jesus is really focusing on, is maintaining the love of God in our lives and how we function and relate to one another. Lawlessness does erode love, but following the law is not love itself. It's included in it. It supports love. But love, the love of God, is much more than obedience, much more than just the love of the law. It's much more than that. After all, we can obey God, right, out of fear. But what did Jesus say? If you love me, keep my commandments. John chapter 14, verse 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. Love of God comes first. If you love me, Endure with agape, with love, until the end. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we have, of course, the Apostle Paul's eloquent definition of agape, the highest form of love. And we could probably quote, quote it by heart, right? Or at least part of it by heart. It's such a beautiful passage. And it's always been amazing to me that that, you know, words written in one language that were obviously eloquent and flowing are translated into another language, our language, and are so eloquent and flowing and full of the love of God. 
when I read it last night, I didn't feel the love of God. I felt condemnation. Because I did not feel like I was measuring up to this chapter. Felt unqualified, incapable, a fraud, and overwhelmed by how much I fail to live this love, to live this life in the love of God. And maybe you do too. We'll take a look at this and we'll pull it apart here. And there's some very real challenges that Paul gives us in this beautiful passage that he's meant for an encouragement. Don't get me wrong, he wants to encourage us in this. So he says, Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I have become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. Well, right there is the first condemnation, right? or it could be, at least for me, I can get up here and I can stick some words together and I can kind of sound sensical, maybe occasionally sound a little eloquent. And if I don't have any love, what's it all for? It's useless. It's just <laughs> take my notes, take my iPad, burn it in the fire. What's the point of it if it's just words and it's just noise? worthless. If it is not accompanied by that embedded, rich, real, deep, agape love. The love of God towards us and the love that we should have towards one another. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And isn't that the truth? And it seems, <laughs> it seems hard to disconnect some of these pieces. I mean, how could, you, how could you have great faith and not love? I guess it's possible. But nonetheless, all of those things, that great faith and the ability to know scripture and and to interpret great things, and we don't have love, then it doesn't matter. That's what Paul said. Yesterday, we placed Art's body in the earth. And as Ray and I were standing there, and we were talking a little bit about him and his accomplishments, we didn't talk about his career or the things that he accomplished in that or we may I maybe touched upon his music or something like that but but not from an accomplishment standpoint what we actually talked about and remembered was him and his character and his nature and his quirks and his kindness and his grumpiness we all knew art it could be grumpy but he exhibited agape love. He brought, he brought his mom down from, from civilization into Oklahoma, from New York State to Oklahoma to look after his sister and for everybody to live together. An amazing act of love. 
for a single guy that never got married and could have just been doing his own thing. And he took care of his family and his extended family. So his character, his nature, his struggles, all of the things that he lived this life with, that's what we talked about. And we saw through into the love of God that was in him toward others. That's what we remember when our life is done, isn't it? Or about those whom we are missing. We remember their love. And even <laughs> the times that they were grumpy or that they made mistakes, they, those times fall away. And we just try and remember the love. Paul continues, he says, And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. So there's something that we get by having the love of God. There's some profit. Paul is saying that he benefits personally from this. He, he profits from having the love of God, sharing the love of God, receiving the love of God. And you know, <laughs> the things before feed the poor, that is easy. You want to go do that? You can just go over here to 129th and Highway 44 and there's a guy there asking for money. Now, I don't know if he's all that poor or not, but there's easy ways in which we can give to the poor. That is easy. That is not hard. And even giving your body to be burned, well, that's an expression of love, right? Sacrificing yourself for another. That is absolutely an expression of love. But it's an easier expression of love than living an entire life of loving the way that God wants us to love for those that are <coughs> around us, for those that are in our life and walk this world with us. <coughs> Love suffers long and is kind, or as we would say, patient. Love is patient and kind. How patient and kind? It's a trick question. How long-suffering is love? Well, it's without end. Because if it stops being patient, if it stops being kind, then it is not love anymore. Long suffering. And what are we suffering? When we are loving others and we are enduring with patience the loving of others, what are we suffering? Well, we're probably suffering they're less attractive parts of their character, aren't we? We're suffering with their sin and how that sin corrupts them and corrupts the things in their life. And we all have that. Every single one of us all have this sin. And yet we are told to be long-suffering with one another in that sin. That's the love of God. 
ask my wife how long she suffered with, with me for 27 years. And yet she loves with the love of God. If it is agape, if it is this God level love, then it just continues without end. And it endures as we see all things. Paul says, love does not envy. And envy is what we could call one of the seven deadly sins, right? Envy. And it's more than just uh, being jealous. And it, it certainly is in the translation there. It's, it's not jealousy in the way that we might think about it. There's definitely a negative connotation for jealousy that, that people share. But jealousy in this, in, in a biblical sense, is a godly trait. You know, uh, there's so many passages we can look at. One in Exodus chapter 20, verse 5, he said, God says, regarding worshiping idols, he says, you shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands who, of those who love me and keep my commandments. And there's that love that we're supposed to have toward God, that godly love, and therefore keeping his commandments. So there's more here than saying, well, if you really loved someone, you wouldn't be jealous of their, uh, their actions or interactions with others or what they do. There's a kind of jealousy that is wrong, yes. But in this particular sense, the envy that love does not have is actually a rejection of God's provision for our life. We're envious of some other life. I mean, we are here by the design and the, the crafting and the guidance and the leadership and the, the maneuvering of God through our life. And he has brought us here for his purpose. And if we are envious, we cannot carry the love of God because then we're rejecting the life that he has brought us to. Love does not do this. It is not envious towards people or other life that we might want or towards God. Paul says, love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, Wow. Think about that. Love does not parade itself and is not puffed up. I mean, how do you know you're living in the last days? Right? When sadly, we have broken men and women who are just, well, they're just broken and they're unaware of God's plan for their life. They're unaware of the deep, relationship riches that he set aside for them in a beautiful and righteous way. They're completely ignorant of that. And so they flaunt their life openly in the streets and they call it love and they call it pride. Love does not 
function that way. This is not love. But more than that, love does not engage in pride at all. Whether it's a distorted so-called idea of love or the pride that we feel in our heart and in our mind and in our nature. What is that? What is the pride that this love does not have? Well, in this sense, pride creates positive or negative self-esteem that is substituting itself for the grace of God. We've all known proud people, right? You ever met a prideful person? Nobody's ever met a prideful person? Okay, there's four of us that have met prideful people. And, you know, they're, they're what do we say? They're, they're full of themselves, right? They like to talk about their accomplishments and what they do. And they like to act large and, and are just prideful about who they are and what they've done. Now, maybe that's covering for something. I don't, I don't know. But that is pride. I suffer from pride. Did you know that? Are you surprised by that? That I suffer from pride? I don't think that I'm great. I don't claim to be some great teacher or wise leader. And I don't promote my accomplishments because I really don't think I have any. I suffer from pride in a negative sense. I am prideful in that I do not value myself much at all. Any of you find that familiar? I have struggled with this my entire life. And it's pride. And you might think, well, <laughs> there's worse forms of pride. All pride is destructive. All pride damages relationships. All pride causes tremendous pain to the person who has it and to those that are around him or her. It leads to anxiety and it leads to sin. We can all suffer from pride. Love, true godly love, is in perfect harmony with God's view of us. What he thinks of us. And we accept without pride, without saying that we are more and without saying that we are less. We just accept what he says about us. What does he say about us? That we're broken? That we're sinful? But what else does he say? He says we are priceless. We are precious and cherished to him and deeply loved by him. So much so that he gave up the perfect unity of love that he had to send his son and allow that to be broken. Allow that love that he had between himself and his son to be broken by death painful death, destructive, broken death on the cross, on that stake. 
So what does God think of us? That we are worth everything he has to buy us back. And to reject that in any way is not living in the love of God and not expressing the love of God. Love sees and values others and ourselves as God does. Easy, huh? Easy to do. Paul continues, love does not behave rudely, does not seek his own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. You know, love does not act on impulse. It doesn't just do whatever it wants to do. It's not rude. It's considerate. It's kind, as we've already seen. It does not act, actually the word for rudely means unbecomingly. In other words, love respects boundaries. And depending on the relationship that that love is in, it respects the boundaries of those that are loved. It does not put its own wants and desires ahead of what is appropriate. It wants and desires are good. And it is good to have wants and to, and to have desires. But love does not seek its own. It does not seek its own by walking over the legitimate boundaries of others. Love is not provoked, and that's an interesting word, because when you go and look at it, it means love is not sharp. Love is not sharp. It's not pokey. We don't like pokey things. We don't like sharp things. Why? It cuts us. It inflicts wounds. You know, what is that song, Love Hurts, I think by Cher? No, it doesn't. Love does not bring sharp objects. Love is generous and kind. Soft. It's not sharp. It's not provoking. Or as the NLT says, it's not irritable. Anybody ever been accused of being irritable? (laughs) When we're irritable, we're not acting in the love of God. Love does not keep a record of wrongs. And this, this is a really interesting one. I think uh, those of us that were at Soul Care training the other night heard uh, a little bit of insight onto this because in, uh, in this we might think, well, forgive and forget, right? Just eh, let bygones be bygones. It's not a permissive thing. It's a thing that requires forgiveness and reconciliation. And then, and only then, can something amazing happen, which we're all familiar with, which is the atonement process, where those wounds, those wrongs, those transgressions, those sins are carried as far as the East is from the West. And who gets to do that? Jesus Christ. Only one that can do that. And even with that reconciliation, the nature of a relationship can change. 
and that is still love. Maybe you're not quite as close. Maybe you have a new boundary. That is okay. Maybe it's sad, but it's still in the confines of God's love. God's love does not require us to accept wrong and hurt and harm. But we do need to seek atonement and reconciliation. Love does not rejoice in iniquity. Well, Jesus already told us that, right? Iniquity or lawlessness, when it is everywhere, it is the framework from which love can sit upon. And when that's, when that's gone, love grows cold. Why is that? Why can love not endure lawlessness? Can't it, can't it endure any, everything? Not according to Jesus. Cannot endure lawlessness. Paul has shown us that, it, that love is, is built on the law of God and on the truth of God. It's embedded within this concept. Love has to operate within truth. It has to know what is true and what isn't. It has to know what is right and what's wrong. Love cannot exist without that. Paul continues, Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Having the love of God means that it does not give up, ever. That's hard. And when Paul is talking here about bears all things, believes all things, he's not talking about taking abuses and hurts and, and beatings and continuing to, oh, well, I just love you. And that's hard. The NSV puts it this way. Love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful, and endures through every circumstance. And I mean every circumstance. Have you ever lost your love for someone because of something they have done or repeatedly done? I'm sure you have. I'm sure we all have. This was something that Peter was troubled with. And, I mean, knowing a little bit of the insight that we get on the character of Peter, <laughs> I'm wondering if this was somewhat of a self-serving question when he asked Jesus this. In Matthew 18, verse 21, Peter comes to him and says, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Asking for a friend. Right? <laughs> yeah. Up to seven times, maybe? Maybe eight? And I love Jesus' answer. He says, Jesus said unto him, I do, not say, uh, I, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times 
seven. Seventy times seven. So what does that mean? Well, for those of you that are very literal thinkers, it means that you have to forgive 490 times. But good luck counting, because love keeps no record of harms. <laughs> so, you're trapped. So what does it mean? Forgive every time. Now, it doesn't mean that the relationship isn't altered. Of course the relationship's going to be altered. You keep coming to me and smacking me in the face, I'm going to love you from afar. Right? The relationship will change. It will be damaged. It will be different. Of course. Can there be reconciliation? Absolutely. But we still have to forgive if we want to retain the love of God. I like the way Jesus explains it this way. Um, he goes into the parable after he's answered Peter, and he says, Therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who went to settle accounts with his servants. Who would like God to come and settle his account with us? First one in line? Okay, Sean's first one in line. He's a brave guy. Uh, I don't, I don't. I don't really want him to come do that. And, and it said, and when he had begun to settle accounts, scratch that. Okay, he's changed his mind. <laughs> um, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded, okay, all right, he's going to be sold, his wife and children sold, all of the stuff that he has, and payment to be made. You know, what, four, three, four hundred years ago, there were debtors' prisons. And the lights went out. There were debtors' prisons, right? Where you could be basically put in prison, and I don't know how you're supposed to work off your debt in prison, but they had that. Well, this is what they had, sold as slaves. So what happens? The servant therefore fell down before him saying, Master, have patience with me and I will, I will pay you. He's just begging him. And then the master of the servant was moved with compassion, released him, forgave him of the debt. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Just that much. Compared to the brink's truck full of gold, right? Just this much. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, pay me what you owe. So this fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. And he would not, but went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. And so when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were very grieved and came and told their master all that had been done. And his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? 
and his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. So my heavenly Father will also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. Gulp. Anybody feeling a little uncomfortable right now? That is hard. That is incredibly hard. Some of us have had tremendous trespasses against us in our lives or against loved ones. And Jesus is asking us to be like him. He, I mean, he's just asking us to be like him. Here he was on this earth teaching for three and a half years, knowing that there's coming a day when the people that he loves the most, that he is just loves with this <laughs> love of God, are going to murder him. And he knows it. How could I possibly be like him? In myself, I cannot be, right? We cannot be like him in ourselves. How can we express this love? How can we be like him? Well, we're familiar with Romans chapter 7. I'm just kind of breaking into Paul's thoughts here, and it's just, I think it goes so well with this because it's such a challenge for us to forgive and love like Jesus. Verse 13, he says, What then, has good become death to me? Certainly not, but sin, that it might appear sin, once that law came, was producing death in me through what was good, so that sin, through the commandment, might become exceedingly sinful. We're going to highlight this by the commandment of God to say this is not working. This is not right. This is hurting you. And now we're going to convict you of it. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will, would not want to do, I do want to do these things, I agree with the law that it is good. But now, it is no longer I that do it, but the sin that dwells within me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good, it's just not there. It's lacking. For the good that I will will to do I do not do, but the evil that I do not want to do, that I practice. Now if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. And I've always wondered about this. It's like, why does Paul write this out twice with so much words? <laughs> it, I mean, it's a, it, it's a word salad, isn't it? The way he's he says it. But then he says it twice. 
Do you think he's pouring over this? I mean, he's pouring out his heart in this letter that's going to go out to all these churches. And he probably had no idea that we'd be sitting here today reading it, reading his heartfelt angst at the things that the, one of the greatest apostles in Christian faith did in his life, and he, wouldn't, he wished he didn't do those things. I mean, he, <laughs> Paul is saying this. What hope is there for us? He says, it's not I that do it then, but the sin that dwells in me. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. <sighs> yeah. We all have a split personality disorder. <laughs> right? Because present in us is this evil and this sin, and we, we hate it. And then we can do such amazing good and love like God in these other moments. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind, as Paul, as Sean was talking about earlier, putting on that whole armor and going to battle against this thing bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's how we are delivered. Christ in us. Really in us. Loving through us. <laughs> dragging us kicking and screaming along with him to love others the way that God loves us. So then, with the mind, I myself serve the law of God. With the flesh, the law of sin. We have to do every single day, every single moment of every day with Jesus Christ. I hope you've really realized that. It's not enough to just pray in the morning and pray in the evening. It's not enough. We need to have a constant open line of communication. We are in enemy territory. We're in the battlefield of lawlessness. And it is trying to isolate our heart and freeze it and make our love wax cold. Every single moment of every single day, with Jesus, in prayer. Open up the prayer in the morning and don't say amen. Keep going. Through every moment, every conversation with a colleague, every discussion with a, a relative, every challenge in work, at home, every moment. That's the only way. Only way we can have the love of God in us and receive it and be receiving of God's love and accepting of it. We have to do this if we want to get to the kingdom of God. 
who want to overcome, who want to arrive with all the saints. If we want to have the agape love of God. Going back to 1 Corinthians 13, and verse 8, Paul says, For where there are prophecies, they will fail. Or where there are interpretations of prophecies, we'll get it wrong. And if our faith is hanging on those things, our faith will fail too. Where there is tongues, where there is talking, all the wisdom, all the words spoken from this pulpit and many others, and all the words that we speak to one another, they will eventually cease. Where there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part is done away. When I was a child, when I was a child, I had this first Bible here. And it was given to me in December 1980. Wow, that's a long time ago. That's Sunday school. Sorry. But when I was a child, with this book, I spake as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. And you know, I, I've always read that and thought it's a foregone conclusion that when well, you just grow up and that's when you become a man. Wrong. You become a man or a woman when the child inside of you is matured, is tended to, is cared for, and all of the things that happened in your youth and all the things that hurt you in your youth are resolved in Jesus Christ. When you let him do the work in you, he is the one that matures us, grows us into that perfect man, to the image of himself. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. I long to see Jesus' face. I think we all do. To see and be seen. Ah, now my eyes see. Right? To be in the presence of God. To be seen. And to be accepted. To not be rejected, but to say, well done, good and faithful. For we now see in the mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. And now abide faith, hope, and love. These three. But the greatest of these 